right, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. This is week two of our sermon series entitled James the Sage, although it's not really week two. I'm actually in the studio recording this sermon about three weeks after the fact. We have been meeting live in person on Sunday evenings. We sing at 4.30, and then for folks not wanting to join us in communal uh, singing, we are having a service beginning at 5. And, and because of COVID being what it is and our mentality around uh, safety being a bit diverse, we've also been doing some Facebook Live sermons at 7 o'clock on Sunday evenings. You can feel free to jump on and check that out on our Facebook page. However, the audio from both of those preaching experiences is atrocious. Just just to put it in a term, it's it's atrocious. So I'm here in the studio and I'm going to be re-recording the sermons that I've done over the last few weeks. Um, this series has been a lot of fun so far. Uh, we have been taking our time getting into it, but, uh, you know, that's that's not new. So this is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. This is going to be a really familiar passage, and actually the entire framework of this sermon is around some of the assumptions that you might bring to your understanding, your pre-understanding, really, of this passage. Okay, so this is James chapter 1. Uh, this is right after the introduction, which we looked at in week one. The introduction says, From James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are scattered outside the land of Israel, greetings. That's the only line that we have to let us know this is a letter. The rest of the book sort of functions as uh, a collection of wisdom sayings. Scholars fight all over the place about um, how to think about the structure of James. As I was saying that, I had this weird image of scholars actually fighting all over the place about the structure of the book of James. They don't actually, you know, punch each other. Not that I've heard of. I don't, I don't know. But Okay, this is James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, so I'm going to make a, a few assumptions here about this particular passage. The first thing that I'm going to assume is that when you have heard this verse read in a situation like this, at church or in a Bible study or perhaps even when you've read it yourself at home, uh, I'm going to assume that this verse is immediately applied to your current situation or the situation of your friend or family member or fellow congregant, right? James's language it's notably broad. I mean, he says, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So on first glance, it seems fitting that it would encompass all of the trials that you or I or your friend or your family member face right here and right now. And I'll add this as well. When we read this line, wherever you are at this moment, in your car, on your way to work, at the gym, uh, just maybe just sitting and, and relaxing. When you think about the trials that we're facing, it, it seems especially, especially relevant uh, in the midst of school being back in session and all of the uh, 
problems with online education or if you're sending your kids to school and maybe some of the fear and anxiety around that, the uncertainty with regard to finances, the relational stress. I don't know if you guys have felt this, but with people sort of taking on different understandings of the world in which we live, whether they be political or with regard to COVID and how to stay safe. There, there's some relational strain there. Uh, so when James talks about these trials of many kinds, it, it's very easy for us to immediately insert our own situation to bring about a point of application. Well, the trials that I'm facing are this, that, and the other thing, and I should consider it pure joy. But who do we bypass when we read this passage and then we immediately go to our situation, when we immediately apply this passage? Who do we bypass when we do that? Right, it, it's it's the original audience, the, the hearers and readers of this letter. And and what's the problem with that? What happens when we bypass the original audience or an ancient audience and immediately apply a biblical text, not just this one, but anyone, to our own uh, precise moment in time? We distort or potentially distort the meaning of the letter because we've made it about us when it's not really about us. Okay, so first I'm going to assume that we immediately apply this passage. Second, I'm going to assume that when uh, the one that you heard teaching this passage, when they get to verse 3, or maybe when you're just reading along at home and when you get to verse 3, which is the bit about knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance, and then we have this progression that moves up a ladder from trials to testing to perseverance to maturity. I'm going to assume that it was explained that whatever trial you are facing is a divinely orchestrated event. It's it's something that has been arranged or staged And it's a testing that is working to produce something in you that would otherwise not be there. And that that is partially true. I even hesitate to say that much, though. Um, But when one does what James says, when one looks through the trial, which is really what James is talking about, when one... Uh, the verb here is to to consider. When one considers not just the trial itself, but when one looks through the trial to a potential outcome, namely um, our our shaping, our uh, perseverance, our maturity, our completion, then it it can be the situation that we face. It can be used to shape you and mold you and form you. But notice the language there. There's a there's a huge difference between saying that something could be a potential outcome that that it could if we look through the trial, it could lead to our maturation. It could be used to shape us and mold us and form us. Uh, there's a big difference between saying something in, in that terminology and saying that that's the express purpose of the trial and why it has been placed in your life, right? So in in the former, God is using something, using a trial, using a moment in your life. And it could be COVID. It could be all of the relational issues that are happening right now. It could be the school uh, things that you're trying to process either as a student or as a parent. Um, But God is using those things as one 
theologian named Thomas Ord would say, and God is squeezing good from the evil that God didn't want in the first place. That That's sort of this idea of it's a potential outcome. God is squeezing good from the evil that God did not want in the first place. That's very different than saying uh, God is sending us something with the express purpose of teaching us something about ourselves. When we think about things in this way, that is, our trials as divinely orchestrated tests to teach us, then we're faced with a massive problem. And I'll pose it in the form of a question. Does this mean that God orchestrated this event that I'm going through right now in my life to teach me something about myself that I would otherwise not know. I don't want to get too specific here, but you could insert pretty much anything that you could think of. And for some people, I'd say mostly the people who are not facing the trial, this event is viewed through the lens of God sent me this so that I might become a different version of myself. And I say that it's usually people not facing the trial that are saying these sorts of things because when you're in the midst of real loss, real suffering, real grief, the last thing that you want to think of is, oh, this is just some divinely orchestrated test that's gonna, it's gonna bring me out uh, much better on the other side. That's just not what we what we think about. And also, James is absolutely not saying that this is the case, that this is what's happening. Again, if, if we have any chance of understanding this passage, it's important for us to consider the audience to whom James is writing, and it's important for us to consider the trials that they are facing. And when we get here, when we start thinking about who James is talking to, I don't know if we are going to especially uh, love what we uncover. Okay? Are you ready? Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament uh, scholar. He's, he's very helpful in this regard. He contends that when we look at James as a whole, we get some pretty overt clues as to the sort of trial the 12 tribes are facing. And the overwhelming majority of these trials, according to McKnight, are focused on economic injustice. So, Throughout the book, James lists things such as stresses that are connected to poverty. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. Toward the end of chapter 1, James writes, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. In the middle of chapter 2, James writes, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, then what good is it? James also addresses favoritism for the wealthy. Uh, Chapter 2 begins with this scenario. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. And then he sketches out this uh, scenario where someone walks into their corporate worship setting and this person is wearing really nice robes and rings and you can just tell this is a person of means. And that person is given like the best seat in the house. Meanwhile, someone else shows up who... Uh, clearly is is not uh, 
in the upper crust of society. It says it's a poor man in filthy old clothes, and, and that person comes in, and then you say, here's a good uh, seat for you over here against the back wall, sort of out of the way so that nobody sees you. And then James says, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And it's all focused on uh, these, these socioeconomic categories of the rich and the poor. James also tackles economic abuse and injustice. Uh, He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And then perhaps the most damning set of teaching in chapter 5 in the book of James. It says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Now, this is like from beginning to end, these texts of economic injustice and economic exploitation, they're all throughout the book. And after hearing all of the passages that I have just provided, why do you think that, that I kind of phrased it by saying you, you might not like this and this probably won't be a good thing for you to hear? I would submit that we usually go into uh, hearing texts like this very defensively. Um, and we have to because when we think about it, we're probably the ones who are doing the exploiting. In chapter 2 where it says that God has chosen the poor, like what does that mean and, and where does that leave us because according to most standards, we would not be the poor in the world. We would have to make that a spiritual concept, which is exactly where a lot of people go. Now, I won't tell you who said this, but there's a commentator on the book of James. uh, And in response to James's thoroughgoing teaching on economic exploitation and the rich, this commentator says, quote, Not every rich man is doomed to be damned, and not every poor person is sure to be saved. Another scholar minimizes the reality of poverty by quickly referring to poverty in spiritual terms. The poor, he writes, is really, quote, the class of people for whom prosperity means little since obedience to God means everything. So in this case, you can be rich and still follow Jesus, which doesn't seem to jive with what James is saying. And actually, it doesn't seem to jive with what Jesus is saying either. Remember, James has sat at the feet of Jesus and has learned his teaching, metaphorically. James was not a believer until after meeting Jesus um, after Jesus' own resurrection. So it was pretty late in the game. But James clearly from the book has become saturated in the teachings of Jesus. And Jesus had some really intense things to say about uh, serving God and serving money. Namely, it's, it's impossible to do both. And I know, I know what you're thinking. Serving money is, is one thing and having it is another thing. And that's, that's fine. We can hold on to that for a moment. Again, I would think that we're probably just coming to this with with a bit of a defensive posture, looking to justify our own actions, I think. Uh, but let's consider this. There's another writer named Elsa Tamez, who's a feminist liberation theologian from Latin America. Uh, if you want the technical term, she would be a mujerista. 
And she concludes, only someone with a job, food, and shelter could affirm such a thing like these commentators are saying and like our quick justifications of how much money we have in our bank accounts. Like only someone who has a job could could say all these things. The hungry, the exploited, the jobless, they want at least to satisfy their basic necessities and they turn to God with those hopes. And, And this, at the very least, it points out something really telling about our context as readers, namely when we look to justify what we have before we think about those with less. Perhaps we're missing the point. So, to review, if we locate the letter of James with this audience, namely an audience that is suffering economic exploitation by other classes, then then what is he saying here in these first couple verses of of the book. He's he's saying, consider it pure joy. We'll touch on that in a moment. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And again, McKnight is helpful here. The trial, he says, is twofold. It's economic exploitation. uh, It's economic injustice, but it's also the audience's desire to respond violently that must be held at bay. This is part of the trial. It's not just the situation that this group of people is experiencing, but it is the wrong uh, response to their given trial that James is, is looking at as well. So James says, have patience, endure. Tamas refers to this as a militant patience. Don't respond violently or angrily. And as we'll see throughout the letter, don't rush to a response that is harsh in its tone. James says a lot about speech and how we communicate to one another. Now, as I've just said this, perhaps for some of you, uh, you feel like this is James trying to tame the audience or subdue the audience or trying to control the audience from a position of power. In other words, James is trying to uh, turn this group of people who are being exploited into nonviolent, passive, uh, sort of, they, they take whatever comes to them. Th- that's not what is, is happening here, though. James is saying when you look through the adversity to the end goal, when you look through your economic exploitation and economic injustice, when you look and you see the end goal, you're going to see maturity and perfection. You're going to see something that's being formed in you. God is squeezing the good out of this evil situation that God did not intend in the first place. And that end goal, James says, should inspire some joy. It's really subtle what he's doing here. And you can think about it in this way. James is saying that these economic injustices that are being faced, they're terrible. They're trying. They're not what God desires. That's why they haven't been planned in advance for you by God. But one thing they are doing, they're maturing you and perfecting you if you can look through them to the end goal. And when this happens, James would say, it impacts how you live, the testing of your faith uh, that, that James talks about. It's not just an intellectual assent. It's how you practice your faith. This is what James is all about, right? He's the one who doesn't want us to be hearers only of the word, but doers of the word. Or he talks about uh, showing me faith without works. That faith is dead. Like it, these things have to go together. What James wants to see is the outworking 
of our commitments to follow Jesus in everyday life. And this is what he's wanting to see in his, in his original audience as much as we can reconstruct them. The maturing and perfecting is evidenced in one's response to the trials. Now, going back to the original question here, can, can this be applied to us? Yes, yes, absolutely. This, this is uh, something that is for us. Remember, John Walton says over and over, the Bible was not written to us. And here, James is not written to us. James is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are facing persecution and being economically exploited and facing the injustices that go along with that. But the Bible is for us, meaning we can take some of this teaching and apply it. I'm simply saying we should not rush to application so quickly that we miss what's going on in this passage. And we shouldn't rush to application so quickly that we miss the highly uncomfortable reality that if this letter were written today, that we might need to hear something like this. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. James is also saying that we shouldn't make God the author of every trial that we go through. I don't know if this came out strongly enough uh, a few minutes ago, but this idea that God is divinely orchestrating these things to teach you something about yourself, that ends up making God the author of every evil and every atrocity and every point of suffering that, that we go through in life which means that anything that has ever happened to you, God was, God was the one that did that, which is highly problematic on many different levels. But I don't fault people for believing that if that's part of the, the pie that is Christianity, that you don't want anything to do with it. I'm simply saying that that is not the pie... Uh, of Christianity as I know it. There are things that happen to us that happen to us because the world is broken and people are sinful and God weeps with us when we weep. God is not waiting for us to learn something about ourselves. God can squeeze the good out of something evil that wasn't planned for you in the first place, but that's different than saying, God put this stumbling block in your path so that you could be the person on the other side. That, that's not what James is saying, and, and James isn't trying to say that this economic exploitation has been placed here so that you can learn all of these things. He's saying if we look through it, there's, there's uh, maturation and there is uh, completeness and there is perfection and there is perseverance that we are moving towards. Okay, third, I'm also going to assume that there may be some confusion in your mind surrounding what joy looks like in this context. I mean, James, he's not a masochist who loves pain and suffering and heartache, nor is he encouraging that of his readers. He's not saying, go find suffering and consider it pure joy. He's not saying, go harm yourself and consider it pure joy. Uh, so what, what then do we do with this admonition that when we face adverse circumstances or trials, that we should consider it as pure joy. Well, I'll, I'll start by telling you what this is not. This is not smiling all the time. 
This is not being happy all the time, necessarily. This is not about pretending that things are going well for you in conversation with friends or family. It's not about putting on a mask or putting on the right face. It's not about faking it until you make it. Instead, what James seems to be after is this. In every trial that we go through, we are identifying with Jesus. And if we've learned anything from Jesus, you can be sad when this happens. You can be mad when this happens. You can yell when this happens. You can lament when this happens. Jesus pretty much ran the gamut of human emotions and uh, allowed himself to feel those emotions in the same way that we feel those emotions. Of course, if you're going through something very difficult and that well-meaning Christian friend comes up to you and says, you know, you know, brother, you really should just consider this pure joy. After you, you kind of calm yourself down and you don't punch that person in the face, uh, understand that that interpretation is a bit misguided because what is expected of you is, oh, just get over it. Just just pick yourself up and you'll be fine. Dust yourself off. Go about your life. When really, in our American context, we don't grieve well. We don't know how to allow ourselves the proper time to, to grieve, whether that's the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of a relationship or, or what have you. We don't really know what that looks like because in our, even in our Christian cultures, when you come through the doors of the church, get ready to sing the praise songs and get ready to smile a lot and say, God is good all the time when that diminishes the real human emotions that, that we have. For James, what motivates this identification with Jesus is the radical hope that both he and his audience have. It's a hope that God is good, a hope that justice matters. This is really important because sometimes I think we are left to believe that we just sweep all of the injustice under the rug, but yet that's not the depiction that we have of God. Justice matters, and part of our redemption and restoration is is also reparation. It's it's acknowledgement of wrongdoing. It's uh, attempted um, paying back for wrongdoing. It, it's it's uh, it, it's setting things right. It's a hope that justice matters, that things won't just be swept under the rug with God. It's a hope that things will ultimately be set right. We might not see that in our lives, but it's a hope that the world is going towards this this end where everything will be set to rights, as N.T. Wright says. Uh, uh, it's a hope that God is with us in the midst of whatever it is that you're facing, the trials that you are going through at the moment. God is with you in that. It's a hope that Jesus has won and that that victory means something in the real world, both that we experience and as we will know it in the future. For James's audience, these aren't well wishes. These are their committed and core beliefs. And when they look through the trials, these things still remain. So when we hear this, this very popular teaching on consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, a few things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, the 
probable circumstances of the original audience. They were facing economic exploitation. Well, if we're going to apply that, then we have to think about the role that we might play as one who economically exploits our brothers and sisters. We might have to hear more teaching from James, which we will hear throughout this series on the rich and the poor. We might have to look into the mirror and consider what God is asking us to do. When we we come to this passage as well, I would like to encourage you to move in such a way where God is not the author of everything bad that has happened to you because God is a sick, sadistic uh, teacher who is trying to shape your character. That's a common church teaching, but it just it doesn't seem to hold biblically. God can squeeze the good from the evil that God did not intend to begin with. Perhaps that very loaded theological statement is worth our consideration. If you've walked away from the faith already because God did X, Y, and Z to you, perhaps we should rethink that and instead see God as one who weeps with us when we weep. When James tells us to consider it pure joy, he's not saying look at this trial, but look through the trial and see how uh, we are identifying with Jesus, that we might be moving towards maturation and completeness, how we might be able to fix our eyes and our faith on Jesus and the hope that we have in him without therefore demanding that God is is the author of what has just happened to us. It's my hope that uh, we can move beyond cliches, and as we consider this passage in its original context and how we're applying it today, that we might get a different image of who God is, who we are called to be, and where we put our faith and our trust. Mm -hmm.